Psalm number 8 is filled with the glory of the Lord. It's full of it. And it'll come out very, very beautifully. We've already had a very blessed contemplation of the glory of our Lord Jesus Christ yesterday, didn't we? We saw him humbled, but we saw his glory. We did. We saw his glory and we spake of him. Well, now it's Psalm number 8. And you just see the words that are here. They're magnificent, magnificent. I want you to notice how it starts and it ends the same way. He starts with this incredible statement about the Lord and he, he then goes through in verses 2 to verses 8 and he proves the statement to be true. That's what he's doing. He's proving it to be true. He makes it first, he proves it to be true and he repeats it with a sense of joy and reinforcement in the last verse. Psalm number 8. O Lord, our Lord, how excellent is thy name in all the earth, who has set thy glory above the heavens. Here's this remarkable verse. Out of the mouths of babes and infants or sucklings hast thou ordained or established strength because of thine enemies, that thou mightest still or quiet silence the enemy and the avenger. When I consider thy heavens and the works of thy fingers, the moon and the stars which thou hast ordained, what is man that thou art mindful of him, the son of man that thou visitest him? For thou hast made him a little lower than the angels, and hast crowned him with glory and honour. Thou madest him to have dominion over the works of thy hands. Put all things under his feet, all sheep and oxen, yea, beasts of the field, fowl of the air, fish of the sea, whatsoever passes through the paths of the sea. O Lord, how excellent, how marvellous and majestic, how glorious. O Lord, our Lord, how excellent is thy name in all the earth. Well, there it is. Every strata of creation, from the fish to the fowls, to the cattle, to the birds, to the child, from the babe right up to the man, every level of creation is declaring the glory and the excellence of our Lord Jesus Christ. This is a psalm that's full of that excellence, that glory, that majesty, that beauty of our blessed Lord. What I liked to bring out, the firstly, is the meaning of that word excellent. How excellent is thy name in all the earth. The, the, the word itself comes from an original root which actually means to expand or then to be great. Uh, indeed, to get to the point where the thing is magnificent. So when you say, how excellent is thy name in all the earth, the idea is that this thing, this thought, this fact of the excellency of the Lord Jesus Christ is something that is expanding all the while. And it's expanding until it becomes something that's great. 
But then it goes on expanding until it becomes something that is very great. And then it goes on expanding until it becomes something that is absolutely magnificent. Now that's the point of it. Oh Lord, our Lord, how excellent the expanding glory and appreciation by the psalmist of the Lord, our Lord. It's a bit like that with us, you know. We start with some understanding and gratitude and appreciation. And then as you grow in grace... And in the knowledge of our Lord Jesus Christ, you find what you had once is bigger. And a year or two later, it's even bigger. And time goes by with all the various experiences of life. And the glory of the Lord, your appreciation of him, it expands until it becomes something that is absolutely magnificent. But it has no dimension. It has no finite limitation. It doesn't come to an end. And throughout the ages of eternity, we'll appreciate more and more and more and more the glory of the Lord. How excellent is thy name now in all the earth. Now basically what he's saying in this psalm is this. If you were to take all the glory of the Lord, all the excellence of his name, and you can't really do that because it's too much, it's infinite, but if you could do that, you would find that there would be enough to spread it over The whole earth, that's a lot. You could spread it right through every strata of creation, because that's what he explores from the babe to the man, remember? From the birds to the cattle, right up to the highest point of creation. You would find there was enough glory, there was enough excellence in the name of the Lord to cover the whole earth and every part of creation. Now, having done that, you would discover you had so much, as it were, left over You could pile it right up until it reached right up to heaven itself. And having reached that high and that's high, you would discover you had so much left over that you could go right up beyond the heavens, you see. That's verse 1. It's a long way. It's a lot of glory. It is actually infinite because we've got an infinite God of infinite glory, of infinite majesty, of infinite power and of infinite excellence. That's what you've got here. That's verse 1, if you look at it. That's what verse 1 is actually teaching us. O Lord, our Lord, how excellent is thy name in all the earth and has set thy glory up to the heavens? No, above, far beyond, until the utmost reaches of infinity. There stands the excellency of the Lord and his name and the glory of his person and of himself. It's so lovely this is. Because he then goes on into verse 2. And he says in verse 2, look, your power and glory is so great. And the excellency of who you are is so tremendous that you can take something as small and as weak as a little babe, an infant, and use that small, weak thing to overcome and overpower and to silence the enemies of God, the enemy and the avenger. God is so great that he can use something so small. He can take those weak and despised things of the world and he can confound the mighty. Do you see that? Not because the power lies in just the strength of a mere babe, but because the power of God working through the smallest of mankind and the feeblest of mankind, he can use it to bring down the enemy and the avenger and to accomplish his purposes and his 
plans and bring to naught the power of the enemy. Actually, that's what happened when the babe was born in Bethlehem's manger. We'll deal with that later on a bit more. It's beautiful, isn't it? Can you not see it? I mean, you think, we've got babies here, don't we, in our congregation. And you look at them and you love them and you see their, their charm, as it were, but you realise they need protection, you know. It's a mother's arms they need about them. It's a father's overarching care that they desperately need because they can't fend for themselves. And yet here he is. Here's this God whose glory goes far above the heavens. He is able to take the weakest and frailest form of humanity and he can establish strength because of his enemies and he can still the enemy and the avenger. And he goes to verse 2. And he considers the heavens and he looks at the enormity of the solar system. And he says, see, there it is again in the creation. You look up into the heavens and you see the stars in the sky. You see the sun and it's ruling the day. It does, you know. It rises and the day starts and it sets, as it were, and the day stops. And it pours out the enormity of its strength and energy and light and power and it's sustaining all of life on earth. And the moon moves across the darkness of the sky and it rules in the heavens and the stars are twinkling from far, far away, millions of light years away so far as the distance and they come to us in their charm and their twinkle. And you look at them on a clear night and you think, this is magnificent. You don't have to be an astronomer to appreciate the vastness of creation. You've just got to be a Mr. and Mrs. Ordinary person like you and I and stand there and say, oh, there's a great God of the universe. His glory is set in those heavens. Do you know? They're so vast, they tell us, that there are more stars in the Milky Way than there are grains of sand on every seashore of the world. I can't quite get that. But that's the power of God. He put the stars in place. That's what he did. He put the sun in its position. He put the moon to rule in the night. And then he put the stars in their place. And only a God of infinite glory, of absolute excellence of name, could have done that. See, when we talk about name of God, what we're talking about is the names of God tell us something about him. It defines who he is, but it also portrays to us something of what he is. That's how you learn something of the attributes of God. What's he like? You look at those names. Well, here we are. He's a God that is infinite, and he is a God of glory. And there we look at the first level, or the first point in creation, and we see the glory of God set in the marvel of a creation. And... You've got to understand this, that there's enough just looking at creation for every living person to know that there is such a thing as, such a one, as the Creator God. There is sufficient evidence in in creation for the invisible things of God to be clearly seen, it says in Romans 1, even His eternal power and Godhead. Now you say, yes, we know that, and look, I just pass this in, just say this in passing, The notion of evolution and time and chance is one of the greatest insults to an almighty God of mighty power. See, we live with this for years and hear it all the time about millions of years and chance and blah-de-blah-de-blah, you know, and we sort of shrug our shoulders and say, oh, yeah, people think that. I mean, it's a dreadful thing to think. It's an incredible insult to God. You say, oh, yeah, but people don't know that. 
They, I'm sorry, people do know that. There is enough evidence to tell them of a being far above them and superior to them who is the in one who is the intelligent designer behind the whole thing. Now you say they don't know it. We have to tell them about it. Well, true, we do. But you'll find they do, for there's eternity put in the heart of every man. And not only that, you will find that when they come to talk about it, they will deliberately leave out, not ignorantly leave out, the notion of a creator. When they study all kinds of sciences, all of us have discovered, who've gone to any kind of institution of learning, the idea of a creator is vehemently opposed with great hostility. Why? Because in heart of hearts, man knows. Man knows. And once you admit it, then he must bow his knee. Because there is one who created him that's greater than him. I was talking to Martin about that. He's brought this up many a time. That when you go and you find yourself engaging in these battles, really, these verbal debates with people who are ungodly and hostile and opposed to the people of God and the notion of God and the things of God, two things happen. You quote scripture about God and there's sort of a, oh, move on to the next thing. They just sort of, it has a strange power to silence. Why? Because, well, what are they going to go? They actually know there's some truth in it, see? They do know there's some truth in it. And if you push the whole thing, they do the other thing. What do they do? They get very angry about it. Why are people about it angry about those who believe in a creator God of the universe? Why get angry about it? Because they know it's true and they have to stamp it down. He's put it into the hearts of all men. And unbelief is a deliberate choice. We need to think about that and acknowledge it. You know, you don't need to be writing too many books on apologetics, which has been the rage of the last 20 years, trying to prove Christianity to be right. You almost need to need just go out in the noonday sun like some lunatic and say, look, see that star up there? Ha! Slip, slop, slap. No, look, <laughs> think, understand. Go out in the middle of the midnight sky. Look, see, understand. I don't have to write a book proving anything. God has proved himself in his own presence. That's the point. And we're missing that. The psalmist never mixed it, missed it. He said, O oh Lord, our oh Lord, how excellent is thy name. In all the earth, the heavens declare the glory of God and the firmament, his handiwork. And there it is, he had it like that. That's verse 3. Now let's look at verse 4 and through to verse 6. Because what we're doing now is he turns from the other part of creation he turns to man, who is the pinnacle of the living creation. And he says things like, What is man thou art mindful of him, the son of man, that you actually pay attention, you actually visited him. I'll tell you what, I like that word visited. It's not in a lot of the versions. It says that you care for him or you think about him. Yes, 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 that's exactly right. But he visited us, didn't he? And that manger on that Christmas morning, God himself was visiting us. It was Emmanuel, God with us. Do you know the literal meaning of that title, Emmanuel, God with us? It goes the other way around. It goes, with us, God. Now, you stand at that manger, and you look at that babe, and you say, with us, God. Fall on your knees. Join the angel voices, and sing praises to the God who made himself manifest in the flesh. Contracted to a span. The God of glory contracted to a span. Incredible truth. But then you look at man and you see him as a creature and you see the incredible ability of a human being. And it is incredible. It is. 
the incredible complexity of a human being. For 45 years I've worked with human beings and all sorts of biology and physiology and psychology and all the workings of human beings and I know nothing after 45 years except I know one thing that we're fearfully and wonderfully made and I know we're the handiwork of God. Only God can make a man or a woman if you like. And that's just the same as only a God of glory and grandeur and power and majesty and excellence could have put those stars in space. You think about man made in the image and likeness of God. We're really climbing now. We're really seeing a work of incredible essence and meaning, complexity and fullness. Not just a biological creature, complex and incredible as that is, but a spiritual creature who is able to know God, to relate to God, to search after and to seek after God, and within themselves as a creature display something of the glory of God and the image and likeness of God. I mean, who could make a creature like that? Pardon me, we're no chimpanzees. <laughs> you get me? We're no chimpanzees. No way. It's wonderful to look at a chimpanzee. It's wonderful to look at the local cat. You're just left in amazement at their creatorial power and wisdom and marvel of what's been made. But you look at a man and a woman. You look at the human being and you see what God has made. You see what God has made. You don't have to be a biologist. You don't have to be a doctor. You don't have to be a scientist. Just stand in front of the mirror and look at yourself and say, you know, just the fact that I've been created what I am. Forget about the fall for the minute. It's we spoiled a lot. But nonetheless, the essence is still there, isn't it? The excellence and the glory and the power and the wisdom of our Lord, our God. In verse 7, he goes to the sheep, he goes to the oxen, he goes to the beasts of the field. In verse 8, he goes to the birds of the air. And then in verse 9, having gone right around every layer and looked at the highest of the heights and the lowest of the low... He says the same thing again. O Lord, our God. O Lord, our Lord, how excellent is thy name in all the earth. Well, we could say, what a beautiful psalm. Shall we go home now? No, 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 there's a lot more. Let's go back and start again. That was layer number one on psalm number eight. There is more. <clears throat> there is so much more. And I'm going to just go firstly to that verse 2. And we'll look at it and see what comes out of verse 2. Because it seems like an interruption in the flow of thought. It's not, you know. We've seen the power of God in creation. And, <clears throat> and we see how the power of God will work even through, in verse 2, the smallest of the humankind just through a babe. And there is sufficient strength in a mere babe or an infant for God to move and work and work through to silence the, his enemies, the enemies of himself and of the people of God and of the avenger. It's the weakest form of man, right, who is the pinnacle. It is a sufficient channel for the display of God in his power and in his excellence. There's one of the most beautiful examples of this literally in mankind back in the book of Exodus do you remember the story of that baby Moses? Moses, the man of God? The man who was going to deliver the people of God with mighty power? He was going to bring them out of Egypt, where they had been for all those hundreds of years. 
And for all such a long time, they'd been under the bondage of a, uh, the strongest monarch in the world. They were slaves. They were making bricks. They were making bricks without straw. They were beaten. They were downtrodden. But they had a problem, for Egypt had a problem, and the king had a problem because, you know, they were multiplying at a great rate. But there's God's people. But you see, God, God is the God of glory. There's nothing goes past him, you see. His name is spread through all the earth. And he says, I have seen the affliction of my people. I have heard their cry. And I know their sorrow. And I am come down to deliver. Isn't that lovely? And the story starts and then it unfolds. And it starts with two people. A man and a woman of the tribe of Levi. Who got married. And they bore a child. Now the decree had gone out from the king that every man child of the, um, of the Israelites had to die. Because this is the only way they could cope with the spreading population, which was bigger than the population of Egypt, the way it was going. So this canny king is, is he just kill every man child when it's born. And this lady, she brings forth birth to a man child. She sees he's a goodly child. Pardon me, just applying that a little bit sideways. When you see your children born, you see them goodly for God. And you go out of your way while they're little to look after them. See, she, she kept him for three months and she couldn't hide him any longer, protect him any longer. And she made that little basket, that woven basket, and she made it waterproof and she put the little one in and then she went down to the river and she hid it in the bushes the little the reed so that it wouldn't be seen. But ah oh, no, dear of me. And then she leaves the sister to watch. And along comes what? Along comes Pharaoh's daughter. She knew what her father had to say. She was a true blue Egyptian. That's what she was. And she saw that thing, that little floating basket in the rushes, and she told one of her maids to go and get it and bring it and give me a look at it. She came down to wash herself at the river and her maidens walked by the riverside and when she saw the ark among the flags she sent her maids to fetch it. And when she opened it one of those Hebrew boys get rid of him. Of course, Dad said so. This is the decree of the land. I'm a faithful Egyptian. These hated Israelites who've got some strange god of their own and a woman heart hardly got a chance to get started. And her mind hardly got a moment to think. What does it say? She opened it. She saw the child. And behold, the babe wept. Out of the mouths of babes and sucklings. That's their ordained strength to silence the enemy and the avenger. And the mother heart of Pharaoh's daughter princess though she was in the highest part of the land understanding the needs of her own people and her own loyalties but the babe wept you see God worked through the cry of a little child that child destined to be the deliverer of Israel Moses the man of God who would bring the people out from the, from the bondage of the Egyptians washed as it were safe and sheltered by the blood of the lamb what a picture you see how God works through that smallest thing in his mighty power? And you say, O oh Lord, our Lord, how excellent is thy name in all the earth. I could give you many more examples, for instance. You think, of, you think of Hannah. You think of Hannah, that lovely, godly mother, Hannah. That woman who wanted a man-child. That's what she wanted. 
Now remember, she was living in a day when things were really grim and bad. There was a famine in the land for the word of the Lord. Really, there was in those days. I mean, the old priest was worn out and not really very faithful. And his sons were dreadful creatures. But worse than that, the word of the Lord was rare in those days. You just didn't hear it. And there was no open vision. God was not communicating himself publicly in a powerful way. And the lamp of God in the temple was going out. It should have been burning bright all the time. Things were getting bad. Fellow Christian, it's like the days in which we live. There's a famine in the land for the word of the Lord. And if we're not careful, the lamp of God's light testimony may well go out if we don't keep it burning, as it were. That's our job, as it were, to keep it going. Now, that's the situation. And this godly woman, she asked for this child. Just She just says, a man-child. I don't know what discernment she had, but she must have had more discernment than we think. She knew that all that God needed was a child that she would lend to the Lord all the days of his life. And the child's born, and it says, and when he was weaned, how old is that? In any culture, how old is that? It's not, it's not very old, is it? No, it can't be. Because he says, he, she took him to the temple, and he said, the boy Samuel, just a boy, just a wee small boy. Was he four? Was he six? We've got to stop somewhere. <laughs> you get me? It's over. She's given him to the Lord. He ministered before the Lord. Right? A child, a boy, girded with the linen effort, the assistant to the priest. And it was through that boy that the word of the Lord came back to the land of Israel. Isn't that incredible? See how God works? Through the babe, through the infant, see what he does? And he turned the course of Israel right around. It, I could give you more. What about Naaman's little maid? Have you ever thought of Naaman's little maid? You children here, you go home and read about Naaman's little maid. All right? You see what she did. She brought blessing to a man who was a leper. She was just a little girl. There was Naaman, captain of the army of the Syrians. He was a mighty man. He had everything going for him. The king had made him honourable. He had given him charge of his armies. He would have had you name it, but he was a leper. And that problem no one can solve. And he tried goodness knows what and nobody could fix it. And then one day a little voice pipes up from a little maid that was taken captive from Israel. One of the people, one of God's children's children. That's what it is. And she was a little maid, a little girl. She said, would that my Lord was to go to the man of God in Samaria, she said, he, he'd be able to tell him. The word of God would solve what the problem was. And it was through that child that Naaman the leper became Naaman, whiter than the snow. <laughs> whiter than the snow. Beautiful, isn't it? I'll give you one more because it's stuck in my head. I'd never seen this before. What about the boy king? Who's the boy king in Israel? Josiah. Eight years old and he's on the throne. Eight years of age. But did you know something? Josiah came after a long line of kings. And the last one was Manasseh, who was for 50-odd years probably the worst king that Israel ever saw. He completely wrecked anything of God in the society of Israel. That's really what happened. He had them worshipping golden calves. and We won't go into an absolutely dreadful, evil, wicked man to the point where you say, well, that's it, Israel, you're cleaned up. You know, it's over, it's off. And then this, this, this boy king comes to the throne and he finds the word of the Lord and he starts to read it and he reads it to the people and makes sure they keep it. And God moved there, you see. 
God moved through a boy king after a masterpiece of evil for 50 odd years, right? God moved through something as weak and small and incompetent, you might think, and incapable. But I want to tell you something absolutely incredible about that. And this was the thing that struck me. 260 years before he got the throne, before he went to the throne, 260, I think it's three years or something, 260 years before, Israel was getting into a serious mess after the reign of Solomon because he left things pretty bad. And the kingdom broke up under Jeroboam and Rehoboam and Jeroboam led the people of God into... They both did. It just went from bad to worse. And you know, a man of God, <laughs> he came up and he stood. He came from Judah and he went to the altar and he stood there and he said, Thus saith the Lord, Behold, a child shall be born unto the house of David, Josiah by name. 260 years later, the boy king is on the throne. Out of the mouths of babes and sucklings hast thou ordained praise because of thine enemy to steal, to still, to silence, to deal with the enemy and the avenger of God himself in all his purposes and in all his plans. That's beautiful, isn't it? Should we go home now? There's another layer. There's an even more glorious layer to Psalm 8. That'll make you say, O Lord, our Lord, how excellent is thy name in all the earth. Thy glory is set above the heavens. Something wonderful. Look at this. Really and truly, Psalm number 8 is the most glorious story of our Lord Jesus Christ. The second man, the last Adam, the second man, the Lord from heaven. He is woven throughout the psalm and his excellence and his glory are to be found in every single verse. He is the man described in verses 4 to 6. But he is also the child that was born as described in verse 2. It's a beautiful picture of the coming in of the Lord Jesus into the world as a babe in Bethlehem's manger. Let's just read the psalm again and pick it out where you see the Lord in every verse. O oh Lord, our Lord. Well, just stop there, <laughs> right? How excellent, yes, is his name in all the earth, spreading over all creation, coming in from the heights of heaven and reaching back up to the same place and above it. But look, it says, O Lord, our Lord. The first one, O Lord, is the title that refers distinctly and directly only to that God in his ultimate deity, self-existence, and eternal being. The high, the lofty, the eternal God, it comes directly from the word Yahweh, that, that sacred name of God, of Jewish meaning and Israel background, but they wouldn't even take the name on their lips. They felt so overwhelmed by the, the mention of such a high, glorious being. Oh Lord, that's the first thing. Our Lord, and that's the word that portrays the idea of Sovereignty, reigning master. 
You see? What a glorious truth of our Lord Jesus Christ. He is God, but he's Lord of all, the reigning sovereign and the reigning master. And where you start to consider the Lord Jesus, don't forget he was in the form of God and he still is in that form of God. He is very God and he is very man. He is truly God. We dealt with it all yesterday, Martin did in the service. Truly God, truly man. Oh Lord, that's the truly God. Our Lord, the reigning sovereign to whom we bow our knees in gratitude of heart as he's coming to rule and coming to reign. That's number one. Verse one, full of what? The glory of the Lord. Straight away. Verse two, out of the mouths of babes and sucklings hast thou ordained strength. There it is. Because of thine enemies that thou mightest still the enemy and the avenger. I tell you, if that's not a beautiful picture of Bethlehem's manger, then I don't know what is. It says quite clearly there that this child is the one who was born, who would silence the enemy once and for all. And finally, in the power of his risen, ascended glory in the coming day, will put down the enemy and the avenger so that he will never, never rise again. It began at Bethlehem. The coming into the world of our Lord Jesus Christ, I'll leave it at that point because I want to come back to the sheer grandeur and the sheer glory of the way in which God was at work in the bringing in of the Lord Jesus Christ into the world. If you go to verse 3 and you look at the heavens, well, he's the creator of it. Of course, he is by whom also he made the world, and without him was not anything made that was made. He's the creator. He is the beginning. He is, was the word. He was the one who brought the world into being by the word of his power, according to John's gospel. And that's the meaning of the glory of the Lord shining in verse 3. And then you go into verse 4. What is man that thou art mindful of him, or the son of man that visitest him? And what is it? That's the Lord Jesus Christ. Firstly, we'll take it. He was the one who came and visited us in concern for the lost, coming to seek and to save that which was lost. He came, as Zechariah said, the day spring from on high has visited us. The morning star, the dawning of a whole new day, the bringing in of a radiance of light and of hope, the day spring from on high, he visited us. And he paid us the first visit in Bethlehem's manger, in all the humility that you and lowliness of a babe Lying in a manger. Oh, Lord our Lord, how excellent is thy name in all the earth. You go to verse 5, I'll come back to that other one. There's more there. And in verse 5 you see the story of man. And in the story of man you see the, the, the psalmist says, look, God made man and he put him over all his creation. He did do that. He put everything under his feet. He said, you go forth, he said, and you look after, you subdue the earth. It's yours to look after as my co-regent, as it were. You're reigning over the earth, man. That's what you're meant to be doing, right? And yes, he's a little lower than the angels, because man is so subject to death. 
And yet he has a glory and an honour about him, which is really very, very beautiful, because he's made in the image of likeness of God. Now, Hebrews 2 brings this out properly. What Hebrews 2 actually says is, when we look at the world today, do we see man ruling over creation? Come on. We can't even control a little virus. <laughs> it's got the world in a tiz, it's in an absolute spin, it's on its head. It's economically crumbling, it's politically in a shambles, and it's policy bereft, right? Well, no, man's not ruling. You see, says the apostle, as he writes the Hebrew epistle, I'm going to tell you about the world to come. Isn't that lovely? We've been doing that in Revelation, lots about that golden street, say, and the city bright, yes, the holy city, the new Jerusalem, the new heavens, the new earth. He says, we're going to talk about the world to come, whereof we speak. We love to speak of the world to come when Jesus shall really reign. Right. He says now, right now we don't see all things under man. We don't. We see chaos, rebellion. We see man having to earn his bread in the sweat of his brow and as fast as he digs the weed up, another one grows. You see, earth sort of rebelling against man. There's a curse on it. And so the whole thing's in turmoil and stood on him. So man's not over all things. Right, we don't see everything subjected to him. But he says in Hebrews, we do see Jesus, the second man, the Lord out of heaven, the last Adam. And we do see him. Who, he was made a little lower than the angels. Why? For the suffering of death. And we also see him, said, now crowned with glory and with honour, fulfilling perfectly what is written here in this psalm concerning what man, what God intended man to be and the role he intended him to have. He said, we see him, yes, he was made a little lower than the angel, the suffering of death, we see him crowned with glory and honour. The only thing we don't see is we don't see everything yet put under him. But I tell you what, he's ascended up on high and he must reign until he put all his enemies under his feet. And then, in that glorious day, in the world to come, whereof we speak, all things under his feet, and Jesus shall be all and in all. The glorious thing. Keep talking about the world to come. Because if you talk about the world to come, you'll talk about the glory of the Lord. And you'll be talking about a whole earth that will, in that tremendous day, be actually full of his glory in absolute unsullied perfection and in blinding brightness when the Lamb is the light in the city of God. But it all started, you know, through the babe in Bethlehem's manger. Incredible. Through weakness and defeat, he would win the mead and crown he would tread all our foes beneath his feet by himself being trodden down. Look, he came into the world and his very arrival in the world shattered the peace and rule of Satan. That's what it did, straight away. See, this is the fulfilment of the promise of Genesis chapter 3. When the seed of the woman would come and crush the serpent's head. And when the moment he arrived, the moment he arrived, the process of crushing the serpent's head had begun. 
the world, which is the domain of the strong man, right? The strong man is Satan. He rules in the world. He knew that his domain had been invaded by someone stronger than he. And yet it was a babe. Why worry about a babe? Because this is the seed of promise. And the enemy and the avenger knew it well. You see, remember when we did Revelation chapter 12? And you saw that incredible picture in Revelation chapter 12, didn't you? There was a woman there, and she's about to give birth. She's just come to full term. And the joy of bringing forth a child, there it is. But right in front of us, the dragon. That's the picture we were given, wasn't it? You could almost smell the smoke of his nostrils, couldn't you? And the foulness of his breath and his hate pouring out in front of that woman about to give birth. It's one of the most malicious pictures you could ever paint. It's one of the most evil vibes you could ever get. That here is this wretched creature, Satan himself. He's going to devour that child the moment it was born. Because he knew if that child got into his domain, then his reign was over. You get it? He saw the birth of the Lord Jesus for what it was. It was like a wedge, you know, just going in and penetrating into the hardest of the logs... And it was just getting in and it was going to split it wide open. And his power would be broken. And it says that he, he wanted to devour the child. He never succeeded. He was caught up to God into the throne, wasn't it? And the devil's day was done. Just by the coming into the world of our Lord Jesus Christ. You know, that's why Herod wanted to kill the babe. The devil was using Herod to kill that babe. That's what he wanted to do. That's why they would take him to the brow of the hill. And they were going to throw him down. Why? Because the devil knew that he'd come, and he'd come to undo the works of the devil. Isn't that incredible? He undo them. And right through his life, that's exactly what he did. He undid the works of the devil, right? What did he do? He went about healing the sick. He went about cleansing the leper, giving sight to the blind, giving hearing to the deaf. And most of all, he stood there and he cast out those demons. And I tell you what, they went. We know thee who thou art, thou holy one of God. Oh, Jesus, don't send us into the abyss again. Let us go into these pigs in the, on, the, on the hillside. And they all rushed down and destroyed themselves, didn't they? And in his life, he was undoing the works of the devil. That's the whole point of the temptations. Do you understand that? It's the whole point of the temptations. We can't go into it that. But Satan came because he'd missed him at his birth. He's missed him in the carpenter shop in his boyhood. He had missed him in his growing years, but at the age of 30, when he was about to go out there and to declare the news of the kingdom of God and say, repent, for the kingdom of God is among you. He's going to overthrow the devil's kingdom just by his preaching. So he said, I'll take him out in the wilderness and I'll tempt him with every temptation until I get him. Until I draw him over the invisible line that crosses between temptation and sin. You get what I mean by that? There's a difference between the two. He says, I'll get him over that line and then he'll be disqualified and my kingdom will be safe. But having completed every temptation, the Lord had destroyed him. He'd undone the works of the devil. And then moving on from there, he goes, of course, to his final conflict. And that's the cross. You see, in his death, the Lord Jesus was locked in the final conflict with Satan. Do you understand that? That's what he was doing in his death. Apart from any other thing, anything else we might like to think about, just that for a moment. It was the final, as it were, death struggle. He was locked in the final conflict. And Satan was going to use 
the last and his greatest weapon of all for a final assault on the Christ of God who had dared to come into the world in such a lowly form but the devil was forgetting that he shall be great <laughs> and the son of the highest and the Lord God was going to give to this babe who was now this man the kingdom of his father David they've forgotten all that and he comes in and he strikes him down with death that was the Satan's greatest weapon. He had no bigger weapon, no more powerful weapon. And he'd beaten every man before and every woman before he'd won. And he's going to win with us because of sin. But, but, he dies. Not because he couldn't help it, but because he deliberately chose to bow to the blow that Satan would bring to bear with all his force. And it says, oh, he's used up his last weapon, which is death. And the Lord Jesus just submits to that. And Satan says, I've won. I've won. And alas, I've got nothing left to do. And I've got no weapons left to have. But up from the grave he arose. See the glory of the resurrection? Do you see how he's silencing the enemy in the Avengers? Do you see how he's breaking his power? Do you not understand that Satan is already a defeated foe? Fellow Christian, we are not marching to victory. You say, what? No, we're marching from victory. It's now victory after victory. The battle, the decisive battle was won in the glory of the resurrection. And then the man child, he was caught up to heaven and to the throne of God above. And when he went up, he led captivity captive. He led captivity captive. He got the keys of death, you get it? And of hell, and he takes the throne and he will reign till all his enemies are put under his feet. And in that coming day, and in that world to come whereof we speak, and in that new heavens and in that new earth, we shall see him a man in glory. God in absolute, but the added triumph of manhood in glory. And we'll see him set over all the works of, our, of his hands. And we'll say, oh Lord our Lord, how excellent is thy name in all the earth who has set thy glory above the heavens. And the whole earth, says the seraphim, is full of his glory. May the Lord lift us up this morning. And then to make us realise, now it's to watch, it's to work, and it's to war. But it's then to rest forever. Amen. Father, we have been blessed again this morning. Thy precious word means so much. It brings out so much of the glory of our Lord Jesus Christ. We just give thanks for the revelation of our Lord Jesus Christ. In all his glory, we long to see him face to face. We long to know him better while we wait. We pray, Lord, we may seek your presence. We may read that precious word. We may meditate on those things which are holy and true, we may be strengthened in our walk of faith, guided and guarded through the week that lies ahead. And may the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ and the love of God and the communion and fellowship of the Holy Spirit be our blessed portion till we meet again 
until we meet yonder on that beautiful shore. Amen.